God established marriage as the first and the most basic of all human institutions. We've been looking at Genesis, and so far we've we've come here now toward the end of chapter 2. And we're going to see this is the first institution that God makes. There hasn't been any institution yet so far at this point. So long before uh, God makes governments or churches, schools, or any other social structures, God established a home based on the mutual respect and love of a husband and wife. And so all the other institutions that we have came from the family. You probably know today marriage is under attack in so many ways. In fact, our own government has tried to redefine marriage several years ago. They have no right to do that. God defined marriage. No human institution can redefine it. But nevertheless, it's under attack. It's it's being destroyed. And if marriage falls, then guess what's going to happen to all the other institutions in our society? They too will inevitably fall with it. So I need to ask the question, how is marriage under attack? Well, there's so many ways. And we, we can talk about our enemies being Satan, the, the world in our own flesh. And of course, family and marriage is under attack from those three enemies that every Christian has. Let me just talk about four ways in particular that marriage is under attack. First of all, marriage is being attacked by the hedonism of our age. Hedonism. It's been called the new hedonism, or some have called it the playboy philosophy. By the way, it's not really new. It's it's new only in the sense that it, it's it's being accepted as it's never been accepted, at least in recent years. You say, what is hedonism? Hedonism is, is just basically where someone's chief goal in life is pleasure. Their primary goal in life is pleasure. And so family comes under attack when your primary goal in life is just pleasure. Second, marriage is under attack from the right, the widespread acceptance of adultery. In fact, it's it's become worse than acceptance. Uh, there's some who justify adultery, and they they the argument goes something like this: that adultery is is often a a tonic for a dull marriage, and, and maybe adultery can revive their marriage. Well, of course, it's not true that adultery helps marriage. In fact, adultery is actually destroying a lot of marriages. Though, having said that, by the grace of God, any marriage can be helped, can be restored, can be fruitful. A third source of attack on marriage is the ease ease of divorce itself. So when divorce is, well when divorce was still considered a disgrace. It wasn't so uh, nearly as easy to get a divorce. And there was enormous social pressures in our society that was helping to hold the homes together. Of course, not all homes were happy homes, even if they did stay together. Many were terribly unhappy, but often homes nevertheless stayed together. And the children we're able to grow up with the benefit of having two parents. You've probably heard the statistics of how, how bad it is for, 
for individuals and children in our society as a whole when a family doesn't have two parents and the children don't have two parents. There's all kinds of disasters that come with that. The fourth attack on marriage is abortion on demand, in which abortion is just made the exclusive private affair between a woman and her doctor. You say, why is that harmful to marriage? Well, it's harmful because it excludes the father from any decisions that, that affect their child. And, and even more importantly, it excludes him from the duty to defend his child. That is part of the father's duty. And so those are just some of the things that we've seen in recent years, so to speak, where we see marriage and families under attack. Well, you might, you might say, well, there's so many attacks. Those are just a few that concern me greatly. But you, you might ask, well, is recovery possible in this age? Frankly, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that there will be no recovery unless Christians first recover a sense of what God intends marriage to be. We, if, if we don't get back to the Bible and the way God designed it here at creation, we have no hope whatsoever of any recovery. The Bible needs to set the pattern for us, to set the standard. And then we as Christians, we need to then believe what the Bible says and set ourselves to achieving this in our own lives if we have any hope of having an impact on the culture. So marriage is under attack. They have missed God's design. So let's see what God's design is as He's ordained marriage here in Genesis chapter 2. Look, uh, we'll start reading in verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First of all, we'll, let's have a look here. We'll see that one of the things God points out to us here is that man needs woman. Man needs woman. And God pointed out man's need here in verse 18. Have a look at that. How did he point it out? He just says, it is not good that the man should be alone. That might be a shocking statement to you if you've been following through the sermon series in Genesis. After all, we've, we have heard God say several times that His creation is good. 
He said it several times. And then on the sixth day, God said His creation was very good. And that's why this statement might startle you. Not good is very strong language here. It indicates not only that that there's the absence of something good, but in fact there is something incomplete here. There is a substantial deficiency in God's creation. By the way, it's not because God overlooks this. God has some lessons He's trying to teach Adam as well as us here. And one of the lessons, one of the the things that we can, can, can learn here is that isolation is not the norm for human beings. Isolation is very unhealthy. In fact, community is God's design for humanity. So you need to resist that urge to isolate yourself on a regular basis, okay? If you find yourself becoming a hermit, you're in a bad place. Not the way God designed you. So uh, just, just take note that isolation is not the norm for human beings. Community is God's design for you. The statement of Adam's need here, by the way, notice it's all God's doing. God didn't consult Adam to, to, to find out what's going on in his heart. Indeed, Adam may not have had any idea at this point that it wasn't good for him to be alone. He may not have even known that he was alone. I mean, you think about it. He's in this perfect environment, and we need to remember that he was in, in the garden. He was in Eden. He had every provision his heart could desire. He was in the, the greatest zoo that's ever been created. In fact, he's, he, there, there were no cages at this time. There, there was no death, so Adam is able to do whatever he wants with all these animals. The animals adored him. He adored them. He was their ruler. And so God was not responding to a complaint by Adam here. Oh no, not, not good was God's sovereign assessment of the situation. You say, why? Well, why did God say this? Why did he say this now at the end of his creation? Well, perhaps... Maybe it has something to do with who God is. Remember, God is a trinity. you got one God in three persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is a plurality. He is a community. And so perhaps since God is a plurality, and Adam's created in his image, the image demanded a plurality. So, so man and woman together... Is, is pointing to God. They're, they are made in His image. So God points out man's need, and then we, we see second, God resolved to fix man's need. He resolved to fix man's need. Look at verse 18, because it says, uh, after God states it wasn't good that man be alone, He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. How did He do that? How did, he do, how did he fix man's need? Notice it says that God made a helper fit for Adam. Now notice that word fit in your Bible. It indicates a correspondence between the man and the woman. There's a correspondence between Adam and Eve here. <coughs> Excuse me. So the focus is on the equality of the two, in, at least in terms of their essential constitution, their person, if you will. Now, I want you to take note, there is an equality between male and female in person. 
Did you get that? Equality in your person. Just take note of that. So what I'm trying to say, in other words, a man and woman share in the human sameness. We're made of the same stuff, God says here. So in every way, the woman shares in the same features of personhood as, as the man does. So we all, you know, we all have bodies, we all have wills, we all have emotions, all have DNA, you know, so forth. Those sort of things, right? We are, in person, we are equal. However, the text also identifies that we are not exactly the same. We are different in function. So the function's not equal, not the same, but the person is equal. Now, I'm pointing this out from the Scripture here, because this, in our culture, our culture gets this messed up big time. You know, there's all this talk in feminism about equality. They, they don't understand the difference between your person and your function. They, they get it all gelled together anyway. But God's pointing out the difference here. Notice that uh, the woman was called Adam's helper. That shows a different in function here. It defines the role that the woman will play. You say, well, what in, in what way would Eve become a helper to the man? Well, you need to remember, as we studied last week, what functions design did God give to the man? What was he supposed to do in the garden? Remember God said, he told Adam, you are to tend and keep the garden. Tend and keep the garden. Okay? That's what you're supposed to do. And then earlier we, we saw God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? So that's what man was supposed to do. Now, he can't do those things alone. God says it's not good. In fact, it's impossible to be fruitful and multiply the earth without woman, right? God's saying it's not good for man to be alone to try to keep and tend the garden alone either. He needs the woman. Praise God for that. Now, the term help there is, the idea is it's in the sense of being an aid, being a support. It, it, in fact, it, it's not meant to be demeaning like some feminists like to make it out to be. In fact, that same word, being a helper, is used of God aiding his own people in the book of Psalms. God is a helper. Is that demeaning? No. God is a helper. So it, it's, it's clearly not meant to be demeaning. Now the woman is not a lesser person because her role differs from the man. In fact, the word helper there is an indispensable part required to actually achieve God's commission. God's, God's mission for mankind can't be accomplished with just man by himself. Man needs woman to accomplish God's mission. Now this point makes the feminist very angry. You need to be aware of this. Uh, to speak of woman being made for man seems to those kind of people to... Well, it, 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 let's put it this way. It stinks of prejudice. It, it stinks of an inequality or maybe even an injustice. The feminists think that these outmoded ideas need to be thrown off. They're, those are, they're old and outdated and so forth, right? Women need to become autonomous is the talk. And it's important for us to be clear thinkers here. Now, one of the things we need to think clearly about is the meaning of the word equality. 
You understand what that means, equality? You see the word equal in the word equality? So you can't talk about that word in just general terms. Uh, we need some specifics. Let me give you some examples so we can talk specifics here. Uh, let's just change the subject a little bit so you understand equality. In what sense is red equal to blue? Well, we know they're equal only in the sense they're both colors. They're in the color spectrum, right? They're both colors. That makes them equal in that sense. But are they the same? No, of course not. Uh, you know, so, so apart from being colors, apart from that, they're different. And that's not bad. That's a good thing. So in, uh, let me give you another example. In what sense is hot equal to cold? Well, we know they're both temperatures. Hot and cold are both temperatures. But beyond that, it's, it's almost meaningless to talk about equality between red and blue and hot and cold. Do you see the point I'm trying to make here? God made male and female. There is an equality. There is a correspondence between the two, but yet they are not the same. So are men and women equal? Well, carry on the analogy here. It depends on what you're talking about. Uh, if you're talking about your personhood, yes, men and women are equal. If you're talking about functions, God didn't design men and women to be equal in functions. We're to be different. Now, the primary way in when the, that they're both equal is that we are created in the image of God. It is this that makes the woman a fit companion for the man. And by the way, it explains why animals are not fit for man. So Adam could see these animals and, and clearly see he's not equal. They're different. The animal is not a companion. So God decided to fix man's need. How did he do that? He made a helper for Adam. By the way, how did God prepare the needy bachelor here? The poor guy's a bachelor at this point. How did he prepare the needy bachelor? Well, verses 19 and 20, God initiated an awareness program. He initiates this awareness program to open Adam's eyes, so to speak, to see that it's not good for him to be alone. How did he do that? Verses 19 and 20 said, Now, God talks about all these things. He's formed the beasts, the birds. He's, he brings them to the man to see what he's going to call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, the heavens, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God gave Adam the job of naming the animals. Remember, there's authority that goes with the naming. God's been naming everything up to this point. So he names the light, he names day, he names night. right? He names all this stuff, shows his authority. And then he, he gives to man dominion over his creation. He says, now... You get to name the animals. The process challenged Adam's intellectual capacities. By the way, that goes against evolution, right? Evolution states you go from dumb to smart. Now, this, this, this shows, no, actually, the first man was the smartest, and we've just kept getting, getting dumber and dumber ever since Adam. Adam was very smart. He had this ability to name all these creatures, 
And by the way, it wasn't just randomly naming them. Naming demanded an acquaintance and an understanding of these animals. And so he would look at them and he would listen to the animal. He would see how it acted. And, and as he looked at it and heard it and saw it, he came up with an appropriate name. It was not a quirky process of, of just reviewing a 10-kilometer parade of, amital, of animals. And so he's not just looking at these things going past him. God's bringing the animals to him here. And he's, you know, he's, hmm, let's see. Uh, oh, I got it. You're a kangaroo. Uh, you, oh, yeah, yeah. That is a chimpanzee or, uh, you know, he's, he's not doing that, right? As Adam fulfills his responsibility to have dominion, his discerning mind is, is growing in its understanding here. He saw there was none that corresponded to him. He didn't see another human being, in other words. He's the only one. None of those are fit for him, right? And so in the process, he realized the animals, they had companions. So there's a Mr. and Mrs. Lion and a Mr. and Mrs. Kangaroo and so forth, right? And they correspond to each other, but Adam sees all that and, wait a minute, there's nothing that corresponds to me. And so Adam began to long for companionship. He wanted someone like him. And so it's reasonable to assume that the man began to ache for a corresponding other. And so God was preparing him to value his helper here. And so you can see he valued the woman when he, when he saw her. And so God makes a woman next. He made this one that corresponded to him. So how did God make the woman? Well, we see, first of all, that God performed the very first surgery. So he performed surgery on Adam. Verse 21, God causes a, a deep sleep to fall upon him. So he gives him his anesthetic to put him to sleep for the surgery. And while he's sleeping, notice verse 21 says, God took one of his ribs out of Adam, and then God somehow closes the flesh back up, and that's what he did. Now, some people have asked, does that mean that all men have one less rib than women? No, Adam's children, had, Adam's children would have had that rib there, okay? God's not taking away the DNA. He's just taking away the rib, all right? So woman is a special creation in the eyes of God. Notice God didn't do this with the animals and the birds and the fish. Right? God didn't create, uh, for example, a Mr. Lion and form a Mrs. Mrs. Lion from the lion. Right? He didn't do that, but he did it with the man. Why is that? Well, she was taken from the man by this surgical act of God. So there's this deep sleep that happens here upon Adam, and this surgery is, is initiated, is carried out exclusively by God. So the man is not even... A conscious spectator of what's going on here. That's interesting. The sleep, by the way, preserves for the man this, this mystery of the woman's creation and the, the subsequent surprise that, that man's going to receive when he sees woman for the first time. So the building block for constructing the woman is what? It's a portion of man's skeleton. He takes a rib. Why did God do it that way? Well, I don't know why God does everything... That way, but anyway, the woman was taken from man's side to show that we, she, well, first of all, she's of the same substance as man. 
that makes her equal in that sense. She's equal in personhood. Uh, It also emphasizes the unity of the human family. In other words, they all come from one source. In other words, there's only one race on earth. You understand that? There's not multiple races on earth. There's only one. We all come from Adam and Eve. One race. God made that race. So she was made of the same stuff as the man. And Adam highlights that when he says, same bones, same flesh, same DNA here. By the way, the woman's creation out of Adam is the basis of her equality. I love the way Matthew Henry, the the old pastor many, many hundreds of years ago, he said this. Here's, here's how the way he put it. He said, Woman was not made out of the head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. End quote. I love the way he puts that. She is his equal in personhood. We also see here, number two, that God brought the woman to man. In verse 22, God's the one who brings the woman to the man. Look at verse 22. It says, uh, And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. It's kind of like the very first wedding ceremony. You ever wondered why why is it that fathers... If father is still alive and a bride has a father, why is it that fathers get to walk the bride down the aisle to her husband? Where did that idea even come from? Well, it comes from the Bible, right? God God is the one who brought the woman to the man. God is the one ordaining marriage here. he's, He's like the father of the bride leading the woman to the man. And so the woman... Uh, must have been stunning based on Adam's response. Of course, she was perfect, so she must have been stunning. She had a perfect body, a perfect spirit, perfect soul. She was sinless at this point, and therefore she was the perfect mate for Adam. So God brings her to the man. But we also see Adam's response here. Notice in verse 23 that Adam responds here with the very first human words that are actually quoted in your Bible. Very first human words quoted in your Bible. What does Adam say when he sees his new wife? He says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So since the woman had been made for man, there are some people who think that, well, that makes her man's servant. No, uh, by the way, the book of Genesis and God doesn't believe that. Instead, Adam immediately perceives Eve to be his companion, and he actually celebrates their essential similarity and their union, and he does it through Hebrew poetry. Now, look in your Bible there, verse 23. Your Verse 23 should look different in your Bible from the narrative part. If it looks different, it shows you it's Hebrew poetry. Now, I am not an expert in any kind of poetry, let alone Hebrew poetry. So uh, let me just quote to you a a Genesis commentator by the name of Gordon Wenham, who who points out the five lines of Hebrew poetry here. 
and how this employs the standard technique of Hebrew poetry. Anyway, he says this. I'll put it on the screen. He says, there's parallelism. Uh, it matches up with lines 2 and 3 and lines 4 and 5. There's assonance and wordplay. There's the, the wordplay between the woman and the man. Very, very similar Hebrew words. There's chiasmus. Uh, there's the, this pattern of an ABC and then a CBA going on here. Uh, so the first line consists in, 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 poet, in Hebrew poetry anyway of three parts with two stresses each. Because it says in verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The, the order in, in creation here is amazing, e- even in poetry in your Bible. The second line, by the way, has two parts with three stresses each. Again, verse 23, it says, She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's amazing. Even if you don't like poetry, it's awesome to behold. What's God doing? Well, because God had honed Adam's naming powers by naming the animals, the man here, what does he do? He spontaneously says, she shall be called woman, which by the way in Hebrew is isha. Notice what I said, isha for woman, because she was taken out of man, which is the Hebrew word ish. Very similar. So woman is isha, man is ish. You say, well, what's the point? Well, the sound play there is is celebrating the relationship. Adam is restating his name that is rooted in hers. Why? Well, Adam anticipated this deep intimacy that he would have with his wife. Why? Because she's of the same stuff. She's equal to me. She is Isha of Ish. So God intends a husband and wife to be one. By the way, you are to be, if you're married, you're to be one on every level. So if a man is, which I know this is a a question for some, but if a man is created as a trinity, not like God, but a trinity of your body, soul, and spirit, then a husband and wife are to be united on all those levels as well. You should be United in body, soul, and spirit. So a union of body with body is what we call a sexual union. That's a good thing. But if your relationship is based on nothing other than a union of body and body, all, if all you have is this sexual union, then that doesn't make for a healthy relationship. It's a marriage of body alone. And if that's the case, then a marriage is weak. And a marriage is probably headed for the divorce courts if all you have is this uniting together of body and body. You wonder why there's so many divorces today? That's one of the reasons. They got married for the wrong reasons because all they had is the physical connection. There was no connection of soul to soul and spirit to spirit. Often people have sex before marriage, which God tells them not to do, and they do it. And so that's the only connection they have. It's not enough. And so there's nothing more there to sustain the relationship, and so the relationship fails. 
and there's and there becomes an indifference there becomes divorce and maybe even adultery and so this is the result of a marriage that is based purely on physical attraction that might hold a relationship together for a while but it takes more than that is the point i'm trying to make a better marriage is one that where you you have a union of body soul and spirit and now this refer, you say well what's all that about what's it, what am i talking about it refers to the the intellectual side of you your mind hopefully your your minds are joining together in, in a relationship okay you need to work on that by the way and that's why it's important if you're if you're married it's that's why it's important for you to have regular dates find ways to have a joining of your minds but it's also an emotional bonding so you have an emotional side, and that, that you, you need to work on that as well. And so a marriage that involves a union of souls is one in which a couple is going to share an interest in the same things. It establishes a meeting of the minds both intellectually and emotionally. If you don't have anything in common, how think about that. How can a relationship be sustained? And so, my friends, you, you need to work toward this because an emotional and intellectual union is not something that's just going to come naturally to you. You have to work on it. Find ways to work on it. You know, for for uh, for my marriage relationship, we we do things together like uh, we we find marriage books that ask questions. They might be deep questions and they might be surface questions, but. Uh, that's just one of the things we do on our dates. We get together and we'll ask each other questions. We're, we're trying to join our minds and emotions and intellect together. That's what makes for a healthy relationship. But third, we see in this text that God is the one who ordains marriage. He's the one who ordained marriage. It's His idea. He ordained it. He, he's the one who starts it. He's the one who, who appoints this as a thing. It's the first institution. And you say, well, what is marriage? Now, here's my working definition, okay? Marriage is a permanent covenant relationship shared by one man and one woman for life. Let me repeat that. That's my working definition. Marriage is a permanent covenant relationship shared by one man and one woman for life. I know some of you are thinking there's all kinds of disagreement in our culture on that definition. But should we go by what the culture says, or do we go by what God says? Well, let's take a look at what God says. I'm going to give you four elements of a healthy marriage from the Bible. Four elements of a healthy marriage. And I'm using, I, I came up with the, the acronym. Here's the acronym, the word CUTE. This is so cute. Here it is. I've done this to help you remember. I am, I am terrible at doing this. It, it wasn't even my idea to come up with this. My wife came up with this idea, so you can thank her for this brilliant, cute idea. So this is going to help you to remember the four elements of a healthy marriage. I'm starting with the last one, letter E. E stands for exit. You say, what does that have to do with a healthy marriage? Well, look at verse 24. Because verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall 
leave his father and mother. In other words, exit. Exit from your father and mother. Leave your father and mother. Now, you need to understand something. In Bible times, even before Moses wrote this, uh, the custom was for a man to marry and then remain in his father's household. So when it was time for them to get married, the man and all his family and friends, they would go and get his wife-to-be and take her from her father and mother, and then they would go to the father's household. Uh, There's many examples of that in the Bible. For example, Jacob's sons remained with him, though they actually founded their own families. That, That was the custom. So custom actually called for the wife to join the family of her husband. So clearly she leaves. That's one reason why the Bible says here that the man shall leave his father and mother. because It was assumed that the wife left her family. And so the statement there, a man shall leave his father and mother, must be understood relatively and as well as a prescription for the loyalty of, an intimacy that a man must give his wife. The idea is there he must leave his family. Why? Well, the union with his wife is so profound that he leaves his family even though he remains with his family. <laughs> Does that make sense? See, you, you can physically be with your family, but emotionally be separated. Exit from them. Uh, The idea is your first loyalties as a man are not to be to your father and mother, but your loyalties, first of all, are to your wife, to your spouse. That doesn't mean you you don't stop loving your father and mother. You don't stop honoring father and mother, but your first loyalty is to your spouse. You understand that? If you don't get this right, it's going to create lots of problems in your marriage, okay? Uh, I've seen many. Many marriages fail at precisely this point because husband and wife have failed to actually leave their parents. Anyway, you probably understand how that works. Make your first loyalty to your spouse. If you don't get that right, you're going to have... This is where a lot of the mother-in-law jokes come from. Not helpful. So, first loyalties need to be established. This is the creation norm, and if you ignore the creation norm that God intended it to be, marriage will be perverted and could end up with some nasty consequences. I know people in New Zealand where mother-in-law has taken back her daughter, not rightfully so, but taken back her daughter. should never have happened, but it did. First loyalties weren't to the spouse. So to have a healthy marriage, you must exit or leave your family. The letter C in the word cute stands for cling. You must cling. Notice again, verse 24, it says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast there means you you cling. The idea, in fact, literally it means To stick like glue. Stick like glue. Imagine, I don't recommend you do this, but to get the imagery, picture yourself going to one of these these home hardware stores and 
buying a couple bottles of glue and pouring it all over yourself and then pouring it over your wife and then give, give each other a big hug and keep hugging until the glue dries. Right? That's the idea. Again, I don't recommend that, but that's the idea. The, the bond that God is trying to say here needs to be permanently unbreakable. And if you actually literally took that really bad advice, imagine trying to pull yourself apart. That would be incredibly painful. You would, you would literally rip your skin off. That's why I don't recommend it. So your bond in a marriage is to be permanently unbreakable, like, like the joining of two things with glue. So to have a healthy marriage, you must hold fast to your spouse. So the, the C for cute is cling. The U in the word cute is unity. Unity. Because the Bible says in verse 24, the two become one flesh. Now the idea of one flesh there is there is a oneness between the spouses. The result of leaving and clinging is the man and woman become a complete unit, or one flesh. I learned something this week studying this, because I didn't, here I've been married for what, 23 years now, and I, I, I have to admit to you, it's a shame, but I didn't fully understand what one flesh meant. And I probably still don't, frankly. <laughs> but I think I have a better understanding of one flesh, what that means. To be a this complete unit, to have this unity is is more than just a body-to-body thing. I think I've tended to think of it as just a body-to-body thing, but it's, it's far better than that. There's, there's a unity of, of mind, soul, spirits, emotions, intellect. Uh, it includes your, the, the moral, the spiritual aspects of life as well. Hopefully there's unity in that as well. Okay? So it's, it's far more than a physical unity. That's one of the things I've learned to, this week. Now the two may serve as a result of this. You can serve and obey God in this bonded total relationship. So your relationship is bonded together. It's a fuller, better relationship because there's this one flesh relationship. So to have a healthy marriage, you must be united in body, soul, and spirit. Let me uh, let me use an illustration for you, okay? This was actually my wife's idea. We were, we were, I was just telling her some of the things this week as I was studying the scriptures and what I was learning, and I, I thought this was so cool. And there's maybe some things we need to work on here to to strengthen our own marriage, and we were just thinking about how how we are one flesh as a couple, and how there's there's this oneness. How cool that is. That's the way God designed it. And how we're supposed to leave our parents and we, we come together and we, we cling to one another. We leave our parents and we cling to one another and become one flesh. And we were just thinking of how we might illustrate this. And it's funny how, now this is a really silly illustration I'm going to use, but I hope you get the point. There is a, there is a point to this, okay? You need to understand something about my wife's family. She, she grew up in a white-collar family, which makes really different from my family. We're the blue-collar family where you know, the, the culture of our families was very different. I, let me just, I'll just give you one example. Okay? 
So she grew up in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C., and everyone's very prim and proper. And, you know, <clears throat> there's all kinds of rules and etiquette, and which I didn't understand when I first met my wife. One of the things we, we noticed that was different about us is the way we eat corn on the cob. There's a lot of things different about us. I'll just give you one example, okay? So, so my wife's family, they come, they have corn on the cob, and uh, they, they, would, they would get out the butter. Don't you love, I, I love butter and salt on my corn on the cob. To me, it just, it's so delicious. And so they get out their butter knife, scoop out some butter out of the butter dish, put it on their, their dinner plate, and then they have to take their own knife and spread it gently, beautifully all over their corn on the cob. Well, that's how they did it in their family. And then we get married, and we're like, wow, okay, uh, wow, we're supposed to be this one flesh unit here, this complete unit. And she sees my family acting like a bunch of barbarians as far as she's concerned. You actually, she, she just looked at us wide-eyed. You took the corn on the cob and just rolled it through the butter? <laughs> and we're looking at her thinking, is there any other way to do it? That's the most efficient way to do it. It's quick, it's easy. The way you do it is so inefficient. So we were laughing one day, thinking, oh, wow, the union of two families is an interesting thing. And, and, and sometimes there needs to be compromises, okay? So, so my mother was listening to this whole conversation about us becoming one flesh. And she's like, I need to, I need to help this one flesh relationship here. So uh, I'm going to show you what my mother bought us. Because we were just laughing at the dinner table one day about us rolling the corn on the cob in the butter and how they did things, you know, all prim and proper. So my mother bought one of these. You ever seen one of these? Now this has butter inside it, right? There's butter inside there. On the bottom, you're able to push the butter up. So you can, you're not a barbarian anymore with one of these. You can just gently... Gently rub your butter over the corn on the cob. It accomplishes the same thing, but you're no longer a barbarian. Anyway, that's just it's funny how two different families coming together to be a one flesh unit. I, I hope you'll never forget this illustration. Anyway, that's by the way, we, we recognize that was certainly a gray issue, right? Now, my wife looked at that, and at one point in her life, she thought, no, that is not a gray issue. That, that is clearly black and white, and, and you're being rude and disrespectful and, and every, oh, everything else. But you know what? She's changed over the years. She's, she's recognized, oh, okay, it is a gray issue, and how you put the butter on your corn on the cob. And, and we've both changed in some ways. So there is a exit, there is a clinging, there's unity here. Now what does the word T, or letter T stand in the word cute? It is trust. The first couple, notice it says in verse 25, says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now of course the first couple needed no clothes at this point in the garden because there's no sin at this point. And so public nudity before the fall was nothing to be ashamed of. And, of course, after the fall, there's a lot to be ashamed of. But uh, there, there was perfect harmony at this point. 
perfect harmony between the man and the woman. There's also perfect harmony between them and their creator. So God comes and walks with them in the garden. They're not hiding at this point. It's interesting, the word in your Bible there, uh, to be ashamed, is a verb. Uh, To be ashamed in Hebrew expresses a sense of confusion, embarrassment, and dismay that occurs when matters turn out differently than expected. Uh, It is the antonym of the verb to trust. And thus it indicates that the humans had complete faith and trust in one another. They had complete faith and trust in one another. By the way, that is essential to a healthy marriage. To have a healthy marriage, you must trust your spouse. And if you don't trust your spouse, we need to have some very healthy discussions <laughs> and talks. Okay, You need to have some talks with one another. Why is there not this trust? You need to build that trust with one another. And so it, that can happen, by the way, even after the fall uh, in, in our human relationships, there can develop trust. Trust is something you need to earn, you need to develop, but it can happen. So those are the four elements of a healthy marriage. Remember that word cute. Let me just end by giving you a few observations about a healthy marriage, some implications that haven't maybe been explicit so far. So because of the foundational character of marriage, at least as it existed before the fall, we can draw some conclusions here regarding the essence of marriage, even for us to today. First of all, marriage should be monogamous. (laughs) And by monogamous, you see the word mono, meaning one. In other words, each person only has one mate. One mate. So, notice God made one man, one woman, and he's the one who brought them together. So that means, guess what? Polygamy is wrong. God didn't make two men and two women coming together or one man with three wives or whatever, right? He didn't do that sort of thing. In fact, you don't even see polygamy in your Bible to chapter 4. One of the descendants of Cain, a very evil man by the name of Lamech, decides uh, that's what he's going to do and go outside God's design. So God made one man and one woman. We also see that God made them heterosexual. Right? There, there, there is no justification for, well, that, that excludes then homosexuality. It excludes bisexuality. And uh, there's all kinds of, ooh, wow, genders and so forth these days. I think they're up to like something like 60 now. Huge number. Is it any wonder there's so much confusion today on what people are when you go outside God's design. How simple it is when you believe God made male and female and that's it. So there's no, there's, no, there's no justification for that in the Bible. God made a man and he made a woman for marriage. The other thing we need to remember here is the, the ultimate purpose for marriage, it's not all about us. See, the ultimate purpose of marriage is you to serve and obey God. How do you do that? You do that by submitting to His Word and, and, and therefore worshiping Him through your relationship. Your relationship is to bring glory and honor to God. And it's interesting that Jesus Himself believed the book of Genesis. 
Jesus taught from the book of Genesis. He believed Adam and Eve were real people and that this was truth. And he, he actually calls upon this very passage here to establish the fact that marriage is an ordinance of God. Look what Jesus says here in Matthew 19, verse 4. He says, uh, Jesus answers the Pharisees, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see Jesus quoting from Genesis 2 here. He believes it. He teaches it. This is God's truth. Well, it wasn't Jesus. He wasn't the only one who taught it. Uh, Likewise, the Apostle Paul mentions this very passage here as a foundation to marriage in Ephesians 5, verse 31. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So human marriage here is illustrating something of the union between Christ and his people, Christ and his bride. The the one flesh idea is expressing a deep intimacy. Everything is shared. And this is so because, because it's Christ and the church. And that's why a marriage that rises to God's intention here is so important. The earthly marriages we have need to point to the heavenly reality. It's a human window into how Christ and His bride relate. There's so many messed up things in our culture, like divorce. I mean, would Christ ever divorce his bride? No way. Would Christ ever have multiple wives? No way. (laughs) Absolutely not. Would Christ ever be faithful, unfaithful, sorry, to his wife and commit adultery against her? No way. There's so many corruptions in our society because we've, we've missed this foundational truth from creation. And so this makes the quality of our marriages of great importance. Uh, if we abuse the creation design here, well, we're, we're, we're marring the image of Christ and His people, Christ and His bride. Marriage then uh, can abuse Christ and the church for not accurately portraying that image. So here's the main idea from the text today. Think about this, my friends. Here it is. The main idea is that God has prepared human beings, both male and female, with the spiritual capacity and shared ability to serve Him and to keep His commands so that they might live and enjoy His creation. There you go. That's that's your responsibility. That's why God made you. And if you're married... That's why God gave you that relationship. It's not all about you. It's about God. May we mirror that image in the correct way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for ordaining marriage and bringing it about, starting it up, keeping it going. Thank you for what what it is pointing to. We're thankful for all these 
so foundational issues here we see in this text. May we get them right so that so that we would uh, we would know how to to be a help in our culture that is that is adrift in in a mess, so messed up. So may we not only know the truth, may we live the truth. May we be passionate about this truth. We would know how to to glorify you with our own lives. We could portray this truth to a culture that needs to know the truth. Uh, enable us by your grace to do this in a loving way, in an accurate way. May we believe these things uh, so that we would live them out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.